Welcome to the Andrew Curtis Show. And before I introduce my guest, I want to tell you guys about something I've learned recently. You see, there's these choices we can make in life that have what you might call an asymmetrical outcome. Uh, and in other words, you know, maybe there's a bit of a cost to you for doing it, but it's pretty insignificant. But at the payoff, the payoff can be awesome. So for example, maybe there's a girl that you've had your eye on for a little while. You could ask her out. She could say no, maybe you'd feel bad, but no, nah, you know, but if she says yes, if she says yes, ah, oh, what a day, what a time. Or maybe your work's a bit dull and somebody has a startup or something happening that you can take a look at in your free time. You know, if it, nothing comes of it, no biggie, but what if it becomes the job you've always been looking for? Or in my case, what if you read a book? What if you read a book and you really like it and you think, hey, it'd be really cool to talk to the author of this book. Why don't you just send them an email? You know, if they say no, if they're too busy, then, eh, you know, no big deal, I guess. It's a bit of a downer. But, but what if they say yes? Well, you see, in my case, I read this book that I really enjoyed a few months ago, and I reached out to the author. Now, at the time, they said, I'm sorry, they can't talk to you. But it's because they're writing a new book. And through that book, I learned that what I've just described to you is something that you might call a free roll. But we're going to talk about that a little bit more right now because uh, the author of the first book was Thinking in Bets. But the new book by Annie Duke is called How to Decide. And she joins me now on the Andrew Curtis Show. Annie Duke, lovely to meet you. Okay. I can't tell you how excited I am that you started with this concept. <laughs> yeah. I, no, really. Cause, so I'm obviously I'm doing a lot of uh, promotion for the book right now. And no one has talked about that concept yet. Really? Uh, it, no. And it's one of my favorite concepts. And actually Cass Sunstein, who, you know, wrote Nudge with um, uh, Dick Thaler. Yeah. We just actually wrote a, a paper on free rolls, which was published in SSRN, but it's actually about to get published. Uh, it just got accepted. So that that's like a preprint place. Wow. Um, but it's a, it uh, just got accepted to a real journal. Like I'm very excited about it on exactly that topic. So it coming to an academic journal near, <laughs> <laughs> near you, uh, it's BPP journal. So I'm, I'm super excited. Wow. So. Cause I mean, yours, yours has been quite a journey to get to that, to that point. And we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit in a moment as well. Cause, uh, you know, for those who are not aware, Annie's, Annie's career did not start in, um, uh, academia, no, not at all. which is partly, I think why the book's more interesting, but that's another story altogether. But, um, let, let's unpack this idea of a free roll and then we'll kind of like wind yeah. back a little bit. So first bit. of all, I want to tell you, do you know how free, where the term came from? Uh, I mean, it sounds like it's a gambling term, is it? Is it, is it's it a, it's, it's a gambling term? I actually have it as a chapter note in the book. So back in the 1950s in Las Vegas, I, in order to entice people into your casino, they would give people a free roll of nickels. So at the time oh. it was nickel slots. Right. Now a nickel wouldn't get you anything in Las Vegas. <laughs> but but uh, yeah, so they give you a free roll of nickels to start pl playing the slots with. Um, and then that's where the term free roll came from. Cause it was a free roll of nickels. Oh, right. Cause I was thinking, yeah, like a roll of the dice, but this is actually like an old fashioned no, roll of like coins. like an actual roll, like you have okay. a roll of quarters or a roll of pennies. So this was a roll of nickels and you could come in and, and the idea was, look, you're not risking anything. You can just start playing the slots. Of course, you know, you're there 25 <laughs> hours later, uh, having lost, you know, your house on it. But, but that's where that term actually came from, but it, it's that, it's that perfect discussion of it. So right now, there's actually an amazing example of a free roll, uh, which is wearing a mask. Right. So what I think is really interesting, because the, the thing about a free roll that's so interesting, as you said, is that you're just looking for a case where there's, a, there's an asymmetry between the good that can come from something, the upside potential, and the bad that can come from something, the downside potential. And the interesting thing about free rolls is that I don't actually need to know how good the good stuff is. Wow. I could I could be completely blind to that. All, yeah. all I need to know is that nothing bad comes from it. So that was your point about like you ask somebody out on a date, nothing you're gonna you, the worst thing that happens is you get a no. Yeah, I mean you're but currently you're not yes, dating them already. No, right? it so, could be yeah. a terrible. It could be kind of a bad date, but it also yeah. could be the love of your life, or yeah, if you you know you get it, whatever. Like basically, as you described, so you actually don't need to know with with any kind of certainty how good the good thing is. Mm. So masks are like the perfect example of this because. People have been wearing masks for everybody. It's, it's, sorry, people have been wearing masks for like a really long time. So it's not, they're not a novel treatment in that sense. Mm. 
So we know that there's no downside that comes from it, despite rumors that you get CO2 poisoning. That's kind of weird because yeah. otherwise you wouldn't have your surgeon wear a mask when they were doing surgery on you. Cause I don't want my surgeon getting CO2 poisoning when they're <laughs> cutting me open, but we know, so we know that there's like slight discomfort. Yeah. That's yeah. it. So, um, but when we look at what the upside is, the epidemiologists aren't exactly sure. Um, there are certainly people who assert that if every single person were a mask, wore a mask, it would be as good as a vaccine. There are other people who say, and this is not insignificant, that the reduction in the chances that you contract COVID when, when you have a mask on, this would be protection of yourself, would be 3% for any encounter. So that's going to add up. But we don't, we don't really know, right? So we're sort of guessing at this. But we know whatever it is, it's good. Mm. That's yeah. the thing that we know about it. So yeah. free rolls actually go in, uh, uh, masks rather go into this free roll category of nothing really bad comes from it, there, but there might be some really amazing stuff that happens if people are putting their masks on. Mm. Yeah. Or, you know, like I say, in, in my case, you know, you, you send an email to somebody, they say, no, they can't do an interview. Eh, you know, what have you lost? Best case scenario, here we are. And, you know, right. this is exactly, this, exactly. Yeah. And yeah. that's true for like applying for, for universities, if yeah. assuming that the cost of applying isn't, um, you know, prohibitive for somebody. Mm. It's true of like applying for jobs. It's true of, and there's all these places where we get hung up on trying to figure out like, but is it going to work out or not? Yeah. And just as you said, it's like, there's a lot of people who would agonize like, well, maybe I'm going to bother her or maybe I'm going to do this or maybe I'm going to do that. It's like, literally, you, you don't know me. If you bother me, it doesn't, it hasn't changed your life. Yeah. So, and it's probably not going to bother, like the, the amount that is going to bother me for me to get an email from someone I don't know is like close to zero. So yeah. it, really nothing bad is coming from that. Yeah. Yeah. No. And you know, I, I, I love that. And, and the, the thing that I also find refreshing about your approach to decision-making too, and this is in your first book and in your new one as well, is that there's a real willingness to just honor how much uncertainty there really is. Cause I, I mean, this was a part of my own journey, you know, if I was to, to share a bit on that, you know, I used to be like probably too analytical when I was younger and, you know, reading through your book and talking about, especially, you know, when there's that overanalyzing kind of thing and, and how much should I know and then beating myself up afterwards, if it didn't go the way that I thought. Um, one of the best lessons that I learned was that, you know, you can't, you can't know everything. And there is a measure of uncertainty in every choice that we make. Uh, and it's, I don't know, maybe something we don't want to acknowledge half the time. Maybe we feel like we should know more. Yeah, I mean, I feel like, so I feel like this starts to cross over with like why people believe in conspiracy theories, mm. which is that randomness, I think is something that's very uncomfortable for the human mind to deal with. Yeah, um, It's a very uncomfortable place to think that you don't have control over your own destiny, right? That, that you that you can't always find the, the right answer if we define the right answer as two things. One is uh, what we would choose if we were omniscient. Yeah. You're not. And the other is what we would choose if we had a time traveling machine. In other words, there's e even if I'm omniscient and I know exactly what all the information is, that doesn't mean that I know how that thing is going to turn out. So mm. as an example, when it comes to like a, a flipping a coin, I'm basically omniscient in the sense that I know what I need to know about the coin to know how often it's going to land heads or tails. But that doesn't mean that I know that it's going to land heads or tails. I would need a time travel machine to know that. Yeah. So, yeah. but what, what we sort of, we, we don't like that we feel like there's a right answer defined in those two ways, right? That somehow if I were omniscient, I would know exactly what the situation was. And if I had a time traveling machine, then I would know what the, thing was that I could choose that was going to work out best for me. And we don't, I think that we want to be in that position. We want yeah. to, to know that we can find the right answer, which we can, if it's defined that way, we want to feel like we have control over our own destinies and the good things that happen to us are because we made them happen. We want these connections to happen. And when you think about a lot of the biases that we have, there, most of them have to do with kind of over uh, asserting certainty where certainty doesn't exist. So if you have something like status quo bias, for example, so that's simply the bias that the way things are today are going to persist. 
Mm. right? That, that things will pretty much stay the same. Well, first of all, we know that that's not true because we have things like washing machines, <laughs> yeah. um, right? And telephones um, <laughs> and computers. So, um, but we, we tend to overestimate how much the world as it is today will stay the world as it is tomorrow. Now, during the pandemic, obviously that's been a little bit turned on its head, but we can see that people don't like it, right? It's mm. not a comfortable place to be. But that has to do with thinking that things are more certain that they are, that, you know, things aren't going to change as much as they will. Um, gambler's fallacy goes in the same place. We, we sort of downplay luck. We think that it's, you know, having good luck is predictive of more good luck. Um, the illusion of control, that's a really big one. This, mm. this idea that we can control the outcome of things much more than we can, um, you know, so on and so forth. So when you look across a lot of the cognitive biases, a lot of them have to do with this kind of like, I have more control than I actually do. And mm. the world is a much more certain place than it actually is. And we don't like to live in that place of saying, no, it's actually super, super uncertain. And mm. I think that what's really uncomfortable and surprising for people about coronavirus is that it makes it a little bit hard to yeah. hide from the uncertainty and mm. that you can see the amount of anxiety that that's causing where I kind of think, well, get used to this because this is actually much more like what the world looks like usually. And if you can get used to sort of living, you know, being comfortable in that discomfort, you're going to be a lot better decision maker because when you think about trying to get to see the world as it actually is, which is going to make you a better decision maker, seeing the uncertainty is actually really helpful and accepting it is really helpful. Yeah. I, I feel like a lot of it is, and, and again, this comes through really well in, in your book as well, that I feel like a lot of our stress comes from preserving our sense of ourself, you know, preserving how much control or power we have over the world. And, you know, maybe the story we've told ourselves about, about who we are and, you know, what does this kind of say about us? Um, and, and, and so much of it is, is grounded in the sense of I control, I control what happens around me. I'm responsible for these things. Um, you know, I, I, I learned about this little, you're probably aware of this, um, I don't know, little tool or device that people talk about, you know, the circles of, circles of control and circles of influence. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I found that, found that really helpful. And if you're listening right now, you're not sure what I'm talking about. Just imagine like a bullseye with only two circles and in the middle of it is a circle of control and around that is a circle of influence. And the idea is really just that in terms of the life that we live, there are things that we can control and there are things that we can only influence. And most of our stress comes from treating something that we can only influence as though it's something that we can only, that, that, that we can control. So that could be like other people or traffic or coronavirus. Yeah, I would, I would add a third category, which I talk about, which is things you can neither influence or control. Nice. Yeah. So, so I think about like the actions of Vlad, Vladimir Putin. You can't control I can neither influence really? those, you can, nor you can, can I control them. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so basically, the, you know, the way that I think about uh, luck actually is anything that's outside of that bullseye. So, mm. uh, so if you think about what's in that bullseye, that skill, mm. then outside of that bullseye, when you think about the circle of influence, that's a mix of luck and skill. I have some, yeah. I have some measure of control because I can influence the outcome but I cannot control it. So this is, that's going to be where you're trying to figure out like, what are the things that I, I can uh, sort of influence and what can't I, right? And then outside of that, it's holy luck. Mm. So, so for example, from my perspective, things that happen geopolitically are a matter of luck because yeah. I just, I don't have any control over them whatsoever. Likewise, um, if I'm going through a traffic, traffic intersection and someone comes the other way and hits me, I had no influence over that person. Mm, yeah. I definitely, so that, that therefore would be a matter of, of luck, right? So I try, to, I try to sort of define luck as in that same way, thinking about what do you control, what do you influence, what do you have neither control nor influence over, mm. and understanding the difference between those um, things. And I think that, as you said, once you start to dig into that, you sort of, you, you begin to realize like it's a very tiny little bullseye. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's not a whole lot there. Yeah. And then- Sort of as on a parallel track, the the other thing that I think about is what do you know and what don't you know? And when you start to think about that, you get into the same situation where what you realize is that what you know, like fits on the head of a pin and what you don't know is the size of the universe. Mm. So we have these colliding, like we could create those two different sort of circles, right? And they're going to look very similar where the stuff you control would be like tiny on the head of a pin. And then the stuff you don't control looks like the size of the universe. 
and and similarly on the knowledge side. And that's really what we're sort of digging around in. I want to say that this is not to say that um, your decisions don't matter. What it is Mm. to say is that the only thing that matters is your decisions. So that's why you have to focus on them so much, because if you think about what is it that that what is the outcome of your life like determined by it's only two things, luck, things like when you were born, where you were born, you know, so on and so forth. There's so, you know, it's all luck there, Mm -hmm. but then there's also the quality of your decisions. Cause as you're kind of digging around in this uncertainty, there are things that you influence Mm -hmm. and there are things that you do have control over. And even if I can't guarantee an outcome, I can make a decision that's going to make it much more probable that I get an outcome that I like. And Mm -hmm. if I repeat that over and over and over again throughout my life, that little increase in probability that I'm going to get an outcome that I like versus one that I don't, that accrues, it piles up like compounding interest to create a better life for me. So I think about embracing uncertainty not as a way to give up, but as a way to motivate you to get super, super concentrated on the quality of your decisions, because that is the thing that you have control over. Mm, yeah. And I'd love to dive in more then about, about why that's so powerful for you as well. I think it probably is something we need to touch on quickly because I mentioned, you know, you, you don't have a career, uh, uh, the startings of your career was not as an academic, but it was a, as a professional poker player. But what I love about your journey is that, you know, you, you went from that to, you know, what I really love about this is the decision-making, you know, now, was that something that you realized as, you know, as you're in that world, and suddenly thought to yourself, actually, you know what it is about this that I love the most? It's, it's, it's the decisions. Was there something even pre the poker world that you were like fascinated about decisions or that you'd seen? Yeah. Little top secret. It's not really a secret. I started off my life as an academic. Um, Yeah. I was in a, I was in the PhD program in cognitive science at the university of Virginia. Then instead of becoming a professor, I went off and became a poker player as one does. Uh, But naturally. (laughs) So, and, yeah, so why the change? Was, yeah, yeah, tell me yeah, more about that. that time it was actually quite strange because, you know, now I think we, we see poker on TV all the time and it looks like a, a relatively, like not a normal, but but an accepted profession. Sure. Um, back then, people were just literally like, so you're playing <laughs> poker and you're a sex worker, right? Like, <laughs> and it was, because it was, in, it was in the same category, by the way, and uh, nothing against sex. I just want to say nothing against sex, sex workers. It's just that like there's these things that people put in the category of vice. Oh, sure. Yeah. And and that would have been in the category of vice back then. Yeah. So it was, it was weird that I was playing it. I, I think that the reason why, you know, I try to think about why is it that I was so fascinated by the decision making aspect of it, particularly mm. as it relates to these issues like of uncertainty and uh, the way that cognitive bias gets in the way of your ability to think things through and understanding what you control and what you can't control. You know, well, I mean, first of all, I mean, poker is just an environment where you have to confront that all the time. So this idea that you don't have control over what the future might hold, like reveals itself in so many different ways in poker. So here's a really simple way. Mm. If you're playing the game of Texas Hold'em, which is a game where you get dealt two cards that are private to you, and then cards come down in the center, that everybody gets to see. And they come down in groups. So the first set is three cards, that's called the flop. And then the next is um, the turn, which is one card. And then next is the river, which is one card. And there's a betting round in between each of those. So let's imagine we're in the situation, the position in the hand where I have my two cards and we've bet. And then these first three cards, the flop have come down. So the number of cards that I have laid my eyes on is five. Mm. So I can see the three cards that are in the center. I know what those three cards are. And I, I know the cards that are private to me. So I know five cards, but we know that there's 52 cards in the deck. So that means that I have not seen 47 cards. Mm. So when I'm making my decision, I have to be knowing that on the next card, the turn, any of those 47 cards could be a card that comes. Now, does that mean that I'm thinking about 47 different futures? No, because I can chunk them together. So I can mm. put... For example, I could put all the clubs together, You're right? right. And, yeah. and I could treat those as one group, but I'm going to have them in groupings that are going to be, you know, four to six groupings, something like that. Actually, mm. interestingly enough, in poker, there's a whole category that you have things in, which is called a blank. Oh. And a, yeah, a blank is a card that doesn't change very much about your decision. So if there's an ace and a king and a king, 
right on the three cards a two doesn't change anything sure because there's already an ace a king and a king so like twos threes sixes like all of those would go into the category of blank on that uh, hand so we have this big category called doesn't change anything that's what that's mm, called. that makes mm, no difference right um so anyway, but, but I'm always, ha- so now when I'm making a decision, I have to think about how, what, how does this decision impact what I'm going to do if this future unfolds, what I'm going to do if this future unfolds, what I'm going to do if this future unfolds, so on and so forth. So, so the nature of the game itself makes you confront those things. Mm. But in addition, I had this very interesting thing that happened, which is when I started playing, like, there were like no women playing, which by oh. the way, is still the case. Right. So uh, I think 3% of people who entered the World Series of Poker Championship in the year that I first entered, it, it was like 3%. And then today, yeah. I think it's the same number. So this has not changed very much. But there, was, there wasn't as much like content around poker. Like now there's lots and lots and lots of poker books that are written. I actually wrote one. Mm. Um, there's videos, people can go watch Twitch streamers. Like there's all sorts of ways to get information about poker. But back then there were like three books, mm, well, right. you know, two of which were good. Yeah. And, but they were all written by people who were like 35 and male. Okay. And they were sort of giving, very, they were very prescriptive in their um, approach. It was like, you should play this hand in this position and when you have it, you should raise or you should fold or whatever. Right. So they were they were very prescriptive. And I went and tried to do this and it didn't work for me. And mm. I think the reason it didn't work for me is that I was really different than the people who were writing those books. So the prescriptions that worked for them did not work very well for me. And mainly what I discovered was that it was, uh, depending on the person I was playing against, uh, in, it, w- it could be very, it could either be very difficult for me to bluff Mm. or it could be much easier for me to bluff. So it tended to be out at the extremes and it depended on the person that I was dealing with. The person who was angry that there was a a woman at the table, which was some category of people. um, It was very, it was very hard to bluff them. Mm. And then the people who just uh, thought that I was an idiot because I was a woman, they were easier to bluff. And I just kind of needed to know who I was against. But if I tried to follow the prescription of the 35-year-old man who was writing the book. It didn't work out well for me. And that's what, what I love about that world too, to jump in on that point too, is that, that it's such an amazing combination of not just the the process of making a good decision, but the understanding of the psychology of not just yourself, but of the people who are there as well. And that's that's again something that I think comes through beautifully, marrying those two things together. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, so exactly. So I think that what happened to me was that I realized pretty early on that it wasn't just like the math of the game because the value of a hand for one person versus another was going to change a lot depending on the way that other people at the table were sort of thinking about you or modeling you. Mm. And then I had to think about, well, how does that affect, like, what am I doing in return that looks like that to another person? Mm. Right. Because I have my own cognitive biases. How am I interpreting the world in a way that uh, is affecting the quality of my decision making? Because the people who are thinking that way about me, there was an easy advantage I could take of that. Right. I could. The fact that they were that they were not being flexible or open minded in the way that they were thinking about me was a problem for them because it allowed me to strategically take advantage of that. Mm. And then I started thinking about, well, how is that happening for me? How is that happening in general across people who play poker? And the big insight that I had really early on was that the problem for people playing poker is that because there's luck involved, there's essentially like a cognitive escape hatch that allows you to not interpret the world in a way that you made a mistake which is necessary to become better at the game. You have to recognize when you made an error. You have to recognize when you had a bad model of your opponent or you misinterpreted what they were going to do or whatever. You, You have to recognize those things. But because there's luck, because of the fact that I could lose a hand where I'm favored to win because a turn of the card doesn't go my way, Mm. that 
people escaped through that door all the time. So what you would hear from players is kind of two sides of the equation. One was um, that they lost because they got unlucky. Yeah. And the other was that they won because they played really well. So basically, <laughs> yeah. think about that yeah. bullseye that you you created, right? Yeah. Whenever they won, they were in the center of that bullseye. Mm. And whenever they lost, they were out at the edge of the target, the part, the part that has to do with something I can't influence. Yeah. And yeah. notice that that's great for your identity. Yeah. Right? Like, in the moment, that feels pretty good. Like, whenever I win, I'm awesome. And whenever I lose, it's somebody else's fault. So, so in the moment, I get, I think that that's really protects your identity, but in the long run, that's pretty horrible for learning. Yeah, and that never, was the big insight that I had early on that said, oh, you really have to focus on the decision problem here that everybody's facing is how do you interpret what's true and what's not true? Like how, why did an outcome occur? Mm. But it's unclear why yeah. that outcome happened. And again, the, the the poker analogy is so cool, and this this comes through in in how to decide as well. I think it's in the first chapter where you talk about, uh, you know, the other side of that as well is when we get trapped in resulting. So you know, this idea where you can you can, and I, I really actually found this really helpful. It was such a cool way of framing it that you can actually make the right call, or at least the best call that you can with the information that you have. And you know, you don't always get the best result. And something I've honestly I've incorporated this into my vocabulary now is that in, you know, in, in poker, for example, when you're looking at a hand at a certain stage, you don't say this person is going to win and this person is going to lose. You'll, you'll talk about it in percentage terms. Uh, you know, opening hand, it might be, you know, 55, 45, three hands come down. Oh, actually it's 75, 25. And then of course, you know, right at the end, it might be 95, five or a hundred percent, you know? And so to communicate to people, uh, you know, how do you feel about something? You know, I've learned to say, well, you know, I'm, I'm probably 80% on it. Um, but what people forget, okay. yeah, what people forget is that, you know, that you can still live in 20% land, you know, if, if it doesn't work out and people say, well, you said it's a, well, you know, welcome to 20%. This is what it looks like. Well, I mean, that that's, you know, the thing is that if something's going to happen 5% of the time, it's going to happen 5% of the time. Yeah. I know that sounds trivial, but it's not. Mm. And the thing is that it's going to happen 5% of the time and you have no idea when that 5% is going to occur. So if you have just one outcome to work with, it's unclear what it means because Mm. you can have a situation where the underlying percentages were like 80, 20 in your favor, as you pointed out, or by the way, and sometimes I think more dangerously, you can be in a situation (laughs) where the odds are uh, against you. Yeah. 80, 20, Mm. and you can observe that 20%. So if they're in your favor, 80, 20, you can observe the 20% and lose. Or if they're not in your favor, 80, 20, you can observe that 20% and win. Either mm. way, that one time does not necessarily tell you very much. If And I want to make this clear. If that's the only information that you have, yeah. if you don't have any information about what the decision process was, what the information was that went into it, what the underlying odds were, right? So, mm. so if I see an outcome I don't, and you, I don't know that it was an 80-20 situation either way, it's very hard for me to know what that means unless I get a lot of tries at it. So with a coin flip, I can flip the coin a thousand times and I can then figure out what, what are the odds of heads or tails, but that's not really the way that most of our decisions work. And the problem that we have as decision makers is that we see the outcome mm. and then we try to work backwards to derive all of the stuff that you're talking about, which is sort of what's the underlying reality of like how, how likely that was to work out. What were the payoffs? Yeah. Was it a free roll? Right. Yeah. Like yeah. We, don't, we don't know those things just, just from the outcome. And that sets up like what I'm really setting up in the beginning of this book, how to decide is the paradox of experience. And, mm. and that's that we need, we know that we need experiences to learn. This was the confusion that I had about poker players, right? You, you have to, as you're getting results and, you know, chips are exchanging and you're winning or losing or in your life, you know, you get in car accidents or you don't, or your job works out or it doesn't, or your romantic relationship works out or it doesn't, or a pass is intercepted or it's caught for the game winning touchdown or Mm. someone wins a camp, you know, an election or they don't, or, a studio buys Star Wars or they pass on it, right? Like all of these different decisions that start to pile up on you and that we know 
that the only way for us to learn is from experience, from the experience of making decisions and then seeing how they turn out. And then this is how our life proceeds. And we're supposed to be presumably becoming better decision makers as we go along. But the, the paradox of experience is that while experience is certainly necessary for learning, it's not sufficient. And in fact, not only is it not sufficient, but an individual experience can really interfere with your ability to learn the right lessons from that experience because we, you know, in that sense that we're talking about, like people don't like randomness. Once we have an outcome, we draw this really tight connection to the decision quality. Mm. And that means that we're not actually exploring all the different ways that that decision could have turned out trying mm. to explore given all the different ways that that decision could could have turned out what what would be the likelihood of any of those things and trying to reconstruct what that tree looked like like what you said right you're saying if you're going into the decision you're saying well i, well, I think it's 80 percent. what you're telling me is that the outcome you like is 80 percent, and then there's a set of outcomes that are 20 percent mm. But once we have the outcome, we don't go back and do that work. We don't try to reconstruct that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's so true. And, and as well, I don't think I've, I've really unpacked this very well for people as well who are listening that when you talk about resulting too, you know, you, you lay this out so well with that when you ask a person about a good decision that they've made over the last, I don't know, six months, 12 months, 10 years, whatever it is, people don't tend to describe actually the, the good decision. They describe a good result. They say, I got a good thing, uh, therefore I must have made a good decision. And, you know, like you've mentioned, you can, you, maybe you fluked it, man. Maybe you got lucky like you've got no, like, for example, I have a friend who uh, started his first business and it worked out. Now, that sounds amazing, but the base rate, which is again an idea you talk about in the, in the book as well, the base rate for business success, especially for three years, something like 90% of businesses don't make it. Mm-hmm. So you go, okay, so does that mean I know a lot about business or business is really easy or I'm a genius or, you know, did I fluke it somehow? And unless, like you say, you're prepared to really look at it, you know, your next business opportunity could come along and you go, hey, well, I got this. I started a business and I nailed it. There's no problem at all. And then you suddenly find out where all the gaps are, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, so that, that, exercise that you just talked about, like opens the book, right? Which yeah. is think about what's, what's the best decision that you've made in the last year. And I encourage your listeners to do this, right? And think about the worst decision that you've made in the last year and just pause for a second and really try to think about what those are. And I've done this with thousands and thousands of people. And the number of times that somebody has told me a good decision that uh, didn't work out Mm. or a bad decision that did is yeah. one. Wow. Literally, I mean, literally yeah. one person wow. told me a, a good decision that didn't work out. Wow. And the decision was actually really good. And funnily enough, I tell a story actually in the, the Thinking in Bets, the other book, about having done this exercise with a group of CEOs. And the CEO was talking that their worst decision was firing. It was actually, it wasn't a CEO. It was the owner of a set of businesses and they had fired one of their CEOs. Yes. And just talking about what a terrible decision this was because mm. it had worked out really, really poorly. But then we actually went through the decision process and it was actually a great decision. Yeah. But the problem is that, so, so basically what happens is that when I ask people, what's your best decision, they think about what their best result was. Yes. When I ask people, what's your worst decision? They think about what their worst result was. Yeah. And obviously those, the, the thing that people are missing is that there's a, like, there's a, basically you can think about it as a two by two, right? Like, mm. uh, so we, and we can do it in something. So if we can sort of get past the stuff that's, that's more subjective into something that feels more settled, we can see how absurd this is, right? Yep. So yep. I can go through a green light and I cannot get in an accident. Mm. Great. Okay. So <laughs> that would be like earned reward. I, yeah. I did a good job and it happened to turn out well. Yeah. But I can also go through a green light and I can get in an accident, Yeah. right? So that would be like bad luck. Mm. I can go through a red light and I have done this in my life and mm. not get in an accident. Yeah. So that's like dumb luck. Oh, I did something stupid. I didn't see that the light had changed and yeah. I went through the red light and nothing bad happened. Yeah. And by the way, the majority of the time, nothing bad will happen. Mm. 
Um, and then I can go through a red light and I can get through on skates uh, and, I, and I can actually get in an accident rather. So that would be just desserts, right? So we can think about those four. And when I start, when I'm talking about traffic situations, it feels very obvious that things would have to fit into all four of those categories. Um, and it also feels very obvious if all I said to you was, I got in an accident, did I make a bad decision, that you would need to know more. Yeah. Yeah. Right? You'd have to think, well, what were the, what were the circumstances of this accident? <laughs> were you sober at the time? <laughs> yeah. Were you going 120 on the highway when the, when the, you know, uh, when the uh, speed limit was 55 or, mm. you know, you'd, you'd ask me some things. You'd, you'd try to query me on some stuff because we understand it's, you know, traffic laws are like coin flipping. We know a lot about them. Yeah. But in, as you just said, when it comes to things like starting a business, right, we know that you can make great decisions and fail. Mm. Yeah. There's a whole bunch of stuff that you don't influence. And there's like, what if you started a business, you know, two months before the pandemic hit? Yeah. Okay, yeah. that have something to do with your business acumen? I don't yeah. think so. <laughs> so, so you have, you know, you can start a business and fail. You can start a business and succeed. You and you can be a very good business person, or you could be a terrible business person. And sometimes you just luck into, you yeah. know, something, and it turns out that you made some pretty bored decisions, but it happened to work out well for whatever reason. Mm. And likewise, you know, you can fail if you make poor decisions um, as a business person. But what we tend to do is. When somebody says, oh, you know, you started, um, you know, Amazon, is Jeff Bezos a great decision maker? You know, and I don't tell you anything about Jeff Bezos. The answer is yes. Obviously, if he started a new business, he would clearly succeed. Mm. But it's not clear that that's true. And yeah. actually, we know like lots and lots of people who start very successful startups have had two a few things that are true. They've had a lot of failures a lot of times that are in front of those. But interestingly, they have a lot of failures that follow that too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that goes back to what's in your control and what isn't. Yeah. So you can, you know, there's just a lot of luck involved in whether a business takes off. And you can be a great decision maker. Mm. You can have an increased probability that your business is going to succeed. But if 90% of businesses fail it's not going to move you too far off of that base rate. Maybe it gets you to the point where 75% of the time you're going to fail. Now that's a bet that you'd like to take, sure. but it means 75% of the time you're going to fail having absolutely nothing to do with what your skill at business is. Yeah. And likewise, we don't want to do the reverse thing, which is just because you succeeded, we think that we should follow your path, which we know that people do all the time. Right. So mm. There's just a, it's 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 complicated and we don't treat it as complicated. Well, and there's a beautiful picture that again I think it starts in thinking in bits and, and then you ex expand on that idea a little bit more and um and how to decide of of looking at the future kind of like a tree. And I thought it was really cool. I've actually I have I've used this with people recently where if you think about uh you know the 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 past is like the trunk of the tree. It's what was and what brought us to where we are, and then the present is the moment where all the branches are breaking off into the future. And there are any one of however many dozens of, of possibilities. Uh, and then, you know, they, they spread out in, into, the, into the future. Um, and, of course, as the tree grows, there's only one trunk. And it, it's very easy to look back and say, well, that was inevitable. And, you know, you use that example of, of, of Jeff Bezos. And, you know, people can say, well, well obviously that was going to succeed because blah, blah, blah. Uh, obviously this was going to happen. And, you know, to, to personalize that is to look at, you know, to look at my life and go, well, you know, or, or it's somebody else's life, you know, we can be very judgmental. And, and again, this is a thing that comes through in your book as well about being, I guess, more gracious with one another, that we look at something after it happened. And then we can say, well, obviously, because we have, we have more information yeah. now, we have better information. Well, clearly that wasn't going to work. Um, and, or somebody does something, think, well, clearly they're a genius because look at, look at where they are now. Um, and again, just the idea recognizing that, you know, once, once a choice has been made, it's very easy to say, well, that had to happen that way, but it didn't have to happen that way. And it, and it can make us, like you say, blind to the future or less gracious with other people who maybe didn't get the, the lucky break that we got that we don't even think was luck. Yeah. I, I think that that's so important to think about is how all of this actually makes us incredibly discompassionate toward other people and, yeah. and often discompassionate toward ourselves as well but the point that i'm making you know about the tree and i actually in this you know I, as i talk about the cognitive chainsaw 
And, yeah. and basically what I say is like, when you're, when you're standing, thinking about the future, we can see all the possibilities, right? Like, what do I want to be when I grow up? It's, you're thinking about a whole bunch of different things and how might this business go? And if I go to this college, what will it look like? And what are the other colleges that I could go to? And what jobs could I take and where could I move and who could I marry? And all these things that where you're thinking about, you can really see all the different ways that the future could branch off. But mm. then once things happen the way that they do, once the future transitions into the past, and obviously, even if there's a hundred different outcomes that could occur, there's only one that happens. Yeah. That's just the way time works. Mm. So there's one that happens and that becomes the trunk of the tree. Cognitively, we just lop all those up other possibilities, like all those branches fall to the ground. We, they disappear completely from view. We, and then we think that it had to have occurred the way that it did. Mm, like, and yeah. even for like Amazon and Jeff Bezos, I can give you the counterfactuals, right? He mm. started off, he said, I'm going to stake, I'm going to put my stake in books. And before I, you know, cause it, that's what it started off as, as a bookseller. What if Barnes and Noble had gotten their crap together? Mm. Je- Jeff Bezos wouldn't have had any control over that. Mm. But if Barnes the noble had gotten their crap together and really started selling books online. Now all of a sudden it might've become very hard for Amazon to compete in that space and establish themselves. Likewise, if their plan was um, to, uh, you know, take over uh, things outside of books eventually, what if Walmart had gotten their crap together? Mm-hmm. The other in the insight that Jeff Bezos had that was so great was when he came in, shipping was four to six weeks. And so he was trying to solve a shipping problem, putting a stake in the ground with books to start. Mm. But someone else could have taken over that book space. Someone else could have had the same insight and said, I'm going to solve this shipping problem. And that person, that, that, that might've been Walmart. Mm. Mm. Now, those, well, you know, things- even like COVID could have hit him you know, or some variation, you know, four weeks into him starting up. Exactly. Uh, and then, you know. Or he or somebody else runs through a red light when he's driving somewhere and we've never heard of Jeff Bezos. Right. Um, exactly. There you yeah. go. That's that's a dark but true example. <laughs> um, right. So, but you, I mean you can see, like, even if we even if we confine it to the business space, it's like what if Walmart had decided that they were gonna yeah. that they were gonna solve the shipping problem? Yeah. So and I and and so basically what I'm arguing in this book is first of all, when you're trying to do a look back, mm. you have to be really careful to really go through and try to put those branches back on the tree and do what we just did with Jeff, Jeff Bezos. Like, okay, mm. well, let's imagine what the other things that are could have happened just to get an understanding of what's luck, what's skill. And that starts to help you to understand if I were to make decisions similar to Jeff Bezos, what's the probability that it would work out for me? Because it feels like it would be 100%. Yeah. But we know that it's very far, like it's so, it's more towards 0%. So, yeah. Just when you're trying to look back at your own experience, get those branches back on the tree, but even better yet, to your point about how you're thinking about your own decisions and saying 80% or whatever, Mm. to actually start off by building that tree out so that you can see it in advance. And and in doing so, when you think about, if if I'm thinking about a particular option that I might want to pursue, what are the reasonable ways it might turn out and how likely do I think that those are to occur? Um, that's just part of a good decision process. And then the great thing about it is it creates an evidentiary record for you Mm. so that when the world turns out as it does, which is only going to be one way, because that's the way that time works, I can now go back and say, well, what was I thinking at the time? And then I can, I can sort of get over that. I can get out of that shadow that the outcome creates like this. It's like this deep cognitive shadow that makes it very hard for me to think that that wasn't inevitable. Mm, but if mm. I if I did the work of great decision making in advance, I naturally have a record of yeah. what I was thinking yeah. at the time, what the different ways it could turn out are, how likely they were. And now I can say, well, I went into the decision knowing that I was going to get a good outcome 10% of the time. But mm. I decided that the payoffs to those that 10% was so great that I was willing to risk 90% failure. But now when I look back and I see I succeeded, I, I can now, I'm going to be more disciplined to that. And I'm not going to start to feel like it was hundred percent. I was going to succeed when mm. it was actually 10% I was going to succeed. And that's, yeah. what's actually going to help me overcome the paradox of experience. So I can start to figure out what it is that I'm supposed to learn. And as a side point, it's going to get you thinking about your decisions more clearly. And it's actually going to prove the decisions you make anyway. 
Yeah, and that's for, for people who are listening and thinking that, you know, if you get how to decide, you're just going to get an academic treatise of this. What's really cool about the book is that the whole way through, there's a whole bunch of exercises that you've put in there, which is so good um, just to help okay. people say, okay, here's here's an idea. All right, now let's let's take a look at your thinking about this. Um, let's describe a scenario and you use all sorts of examples, like what if you move to another town for a new job um, and, you know, these are the things you know, these are the things you don't know, these are your preferences and that kind of stuff. So what, what made you decide to take that approach? Because it, it, it's, kind of, it's kind of a combination between really cool storytelling and, and that kind of, if I call it like an academic foundation, but then it's also like this real world, okay, you've read all this stuff, that doesn't mean squat, let's think about your world, your life, and, and go through there. How did you come up with that yeah. format? So, yeah, first of all, thank you. I, I hope people listening don't think this is like a dry academic book. It's actually uh, the, the, I had, the audience that I had in mind when I wrote it was, I want it to be really useful for someone who really knows this space really well, but also incredibly useful. I was thinking about someone who's 25, 30, really smart, but hasn't ever come across like anything in decision-making. And they're just looking at how can I improve my life? Like, how can I make better decisions? So this is, uh, the, the examples are very real world, very relatable. This book, at, I like to write books that are basically pretty math free mm-hmm. because I think that you can be thinking through these things really clearly without someone confronting you with some crazy equation. Um, because mathematical thinking, like if you think about it, if I say to you, like I've got two cookies um, and you have two cookies, let's combine them. You, like it's math, but it's not like a, an equation. Like we just can see, oh, there's four cookies there, right? Sure. Like that's the way that I like to think about math is how do you actually bring that, ground that into something that's really practical. So um, so what I wanted to do was actually lay something out for somebody where from soup to nuts, they could figure out, okay, how do I actually think about my own decision-making and how do I actually make better decisions, including how do I overcome an inability to make a decision? right? Which is what we started off talking about with free rolls, which is one of those ways that you could think about how to, how to overcome an inability to make decisions. So mm. this is going to make you, uh, this is hopefully going to help you to make more efficient decisions that are more accurate. It's going to help you improve your knowledge of the world because a good decision-making process uh, demands open-mindedness so that you can like be really hungry to learn new things. It's going to speed your decisions up mostly, mm-hmm. uh, which might be counterintuitive but it will. Um, And it's going to help you figure out how can I really um, interact with people so that their perspectives can really help me become a better decision maker, which is also a real key component. The reason why I wrote this was because of interactions with my readers, which is where most of my good ideas come from, is from interacting with my readers. So they they read the first book and like you, they said, I'm all in on uncertainty. Yeah. Right. I think, I think I need to acknowledge it. I need to start thinking about it this way. I need to start saying I'm 80% and not think that bad things is a hundred or zero. Mm. I don't, I'm realizing I don't have as much control over the way things turn out. Like all of the stuff that you started off saying about thinking in bets, they said that to me. Mm. And then they said, how? Nice. So if I were to take these ideas and I were to try to figure out how would I make a good decision? What would I do? And I realized that I, I kind of two things. So that was the, the first thing was, oh, I didn't really lay out like what are the tools that you would use? And mm. so this book is filled with checklists and wrap ups and different decision tools that you can literally Xerox. Yeah. And or I guess scan nowadays. <laughs> yeah. Age and I said Xerox, but you can copy them yeah. and you can actually literally use them to start to figure out how, you know, to really create a good decision process for yourself. So this is a very, very practical book. The Mm. other thing that I realized from interacting with my readers had to do with the speed issue, which Mm. is that, um, and this is completely on me, that the way that I was talking about uncertainty and and really trying to map out what the probabilities of things occurring are and things like that as as kind of a general concept and thinking and bets made people think that I was advocating for going very slow. Right. Your decisions, which I realized, first of all, was a big um, just miscommunication on my part. And second of all, I was a poker player. You have to make decisions. (laughs) So I couldn't even believe that I had given that impression. But right. that was totally on me, by the way. And I was really happy to have readers 
point that out to me that I hadn't really addressed how you can go fast and still have good decision quality. Well, you so know, for I, me, when I, when, I, when I read that through, though, I, I started to see it more, and particularly it comes through in, in, in how to decide. Um, I thought of it more kind of like, you know, borrowing from the Daniel Kahneman school of fast and slow, that it's, it's kind of like learning how to tie your shoes for the first time. Um, that it's like, okay, here's a whole bunch of stuff, and this kind of seems like a lot. Like, it seems like a lot of stuff. Uh, or driving a car is probably an even better example. And when the first time you do it, it's, it's slow it's and, horrible. and yeah. you bunny hop and you're like, what's going on? But after a while, you're able to do it and, you know, eat your breakfast and drink a coffee and change the radio. Not that you should do that, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but that's how it, it contributes to speed. You know, that, that was what I started to draw from the... Yeah, so that's exactly what I was trying to... I think that I... What you just said, by the way, thank you, because I think that's such... If I'm going to borrow that metaphor, if that's okay... I think that idea of like trying, you know, learning to drive a car that you need to understand, you need to understand it in a deliberative way first. And then, and then you can start to speed that up. So um, I think that that's such an apt way to put it. I really appreciate that. That's actually helped me clarify the way that I think about it. So I'm grateful for that. And I don't think that I communicated that as clearly as I could have in thinking in bets. And so I was really trying to sort of write that ship Mm -hmm. in how to decide and really make it clear. Look, here in a really deliberative kind of just starting to learn how to drive a car way is the way that you would think about this and the way that you would navigate this space. And then like, you know, chapter seven is just devoted to speed. Yeah. Here's how you go fast, 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 fast. Cause mostly you should be going fast. Mm. Um, but you can't go fast until you understand structurally and conceptually and kind of mm. in a systems way and so on and so forth, like what the problem is and why, how you could navigate making a decision. Mm. So I was really, really trying to, to ha- repair that conversation mm. with my readers and really give them tools for getting out of this, you know, just sort of like inability to decide analysis paralysis and, and help them with that, which is where the free roll conversation yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And then, you know, and then I spend a lot of time just like how to have better conversations with people mm. so that they, you know, you're one of your best tools for being a better decision maker is getting advice from other people. But the way that we solicit advice uh, generally actually makes our decisions worse. So um, I just, I just really try to give a lot of guidance and, and, and a big toolkit in that area about how can I talk to another person so I can really, uh, maximize the value of that conversation in, mm. re, in relation to the quality of, of my decision-making. So, um, any, so I have a question really what, for you. I, I need to ask before, cause I realized we're, we're, we're almost out of time, but there's, you've just reminded me of something that I really wanted to, to, to bounce off of you. So yeah. here's, here's my question on this, because it, you know, when I was reading through and thinking about, you know, these interactions with people in particular, that's what spurred my, my memory here. Um, I, again, I've, I've, I don't know why I've never forgotten a conversation with a friend of mine who, uh, again, it was in, in the business world and he was talking about, he'd found this business consultant. Uh, and you know, this guy had come to him and said, you know, uh, the most, in the end of the day, the most confident person or the most sure person wins, you know, in terms of convincing people, you know, to, to win an argument and all this kind of stuff. And I was listening and at the time I just kind of let it go. But in my mind, I thought, yeah, but that doesn't mean the confident person's right. Like it doesn't right. mean they, they, they know, but so my, my, my challenge, I guess, in it is this, is that when I, when I read through, you know, books like yours and others that I have on, on decision-making, I, I think it's made me a lot more gracious and nuanced. Uh, but I realize the challenge for that is that often in conversations with somebody else, um, maybe it's because we're trained to do it, or maybe it's what we want because we want certainty that we look for the person who's prepared to tell us this is the way it's going to be. And this is the way it is. I don't feel like that's a great way to be a, a good friend or workmate or, you know, manager or something like that. But I, I, I see the need for people to have that from someone. So, you know, how, how do we overcome the sense that maybe even when we're talking to somebody else that, you know, I want to say, well, look, you know, we can't be hundred percent certain in this. We can go with what we know. We can, this kind of thing. And yet if somebody walks into the room and says, if you do this, this will work. And, there's a, there's a fair well, chance that I'll carry the room. That on it, number one. <laughs> <laughs> come off that confidence. No, I'm serious. If you're like, okay, let's place a bet. Nice. Like, no, 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 I didn't mean 100% sure. So number one, I really recommend that. As That's it. great. That's great. I love um, that. Uh, that happens all the time. People are like, I know it's going to be, okay, how much you want to bet? Well, I didn't mean 100%. Oh, really? Oh. Okay, because I just said that. 
Um, yeah. What we need yeah. to do in our conversations, particularly in a team setting, is is really normalize that dispersion is the place that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. So what do I mean by that? Like, uh, we believe the earth is round. Like, who cares? Okay, great. We agree on that. Um, yeah. If you're going through like an investment and you all agree that the market opportunity is really great, but you have uh, really different viewpoints on what the quality of the product is. For example, we want to surface that and we want to, and and that's the place that we want to talk. So the first thing is you want to get everybody's opinions independently because there's a lot of pressure in groups that we think Mm. that the group is to agree. Yes. And, and the goal of conversation is to actually come to some sort of agreement, which is where we get the most sure person ends up being the most convincing. Mm. Well, that means that you think the goal is to convince. So we want to move away from that and to start to normalize that the really interesting stuff happens in the places where people have different perspectives. So the first thing is surface those different perspectives. So if I ask people independently, they're going to give me their true thoughts. Then if I ask them in a group setting, then they're going to, they're going to get convinced by what other people are saying in the room, or they may just suppress their opinion, particularly if that person is very confident or in a leadership role. So, so ask everybody independently. What do you think of the market opportunity? What do you think the quality of the product is? What so on and so forth, right? Like, you know, uh, if you're hiring somebody, what do you think the probability is this person will still be with us in a year, right? Mm. Make sure that you're doing it in a way where the disagreement can come through. And now you find out where the dispersion of opinion is. So now you take all those independent responses and you group them into things people agree on and things people um, diverge on. You go into the meeting, you say, here's where we agree. And then that's it. Like you just acknowledge it, which we know that we're in meetings. Everybody's talking about, wait, I want to, uh, you <laughs> say something brilliant. And then I say, Andrew, you said something really brilliant. Let me click on that. Yeah. And I'm going to, let me say it again in my own way. And <laughs> like, five minutes in, you've only talked about one thing that you all agree on. So it helps yeah. us to get away from that. Right. So you say, here's all the places we agree, but this is really super, super interesting because Annie thinks that the product is a two and Andrew thinks the product is a five. Yeah. So Annie, could you just convey why you believe that? And I get to give my rationale. Yeah. And Andrew, can you convey why you believe that? And you give your rationale. And the thing that I'm not allowed to do is while you're speaking, I'm not allowed to say, but you haven't thought about it this way. Or why aren't you looking at it from this perspective? Or I think that you're wrong Mm. because I'm going to get my opportunity to express my point of view. We're just surfacing it. And, mm. and, and you need to think about this difference between convey and convince, right? Mm. I, wanna, I want the group and the decision to be as informed as possible. And if I'm approaching the conversation through the lens of, lens of convincing, it won't be informed because I'm going to be suppressing people's perspectives. Mm. So, so you need a really good facilitator to do this. So we just surface all of these opinions. And then this is the really key thing. You don't need to agree to decide. Right. That that's the thing that's really key because if you think you need to agree to decide, you will get mm. false consensus and you will right. get a lot of chatter outside of the room. So the point is, someone's going to decide. There's mm. going to be a decider. It may be that the room takes a vote. Okay, then the majority gets the vote, but you've recorded the whole process so you can go back and look at at what people thought at the time. Remember, we want to create a record, and a good decision process creates a record. Yeah. But the other thing is if I'm, if I'm in the leadership role, I just want to surface all of the different points of view. And then I take that into account and I can go off and make a much better informed decision than if I just allowed people to talk in the room where the biggest blusterer and the person with the most confidence is going to overtake the conversation. I'm never going to get to see what everybody mm-hmm. thinks. So, and this type of process where you're surfacing these opinions before you ever get in the room normalizes that people disagree because it, when we're in groups, we hide through all sorts of different ways that I talk about in the book. We hide all of that disagreement because we're uncomfortable in it. But once we start to surface that before we get in meetings, people start to see, oh, everybody disagrees with each other. This is fine. And then you, and then you create a different culture on your team. Wow. It, it reminds me of, um, I don't know if you're familiar with um, Lencioni's Five Dysfunctions of a Team. Yeah. Um, yeah. And just this idea that, um, yeah, to, to have any kind of consensus, you've got to have that ability to honestly, you know, I mean, I like to talk about it as, you know, being honest conversations that we can all say what we think honestly. Right. And if you do that, you can get a degree of commitment. And if you don't, 
Um, I mean, again, for me, when I've had these conversations with uh, in, in workplaces and you say to people, I said, let's, let's imagine how this scenario works, right? We go in there and we say, okay, blah, 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 blah. Does everybody understand? And what do they all do? Everybody goes, yes. And now I pop quiz everybody. Does everybody understand? No. Oh, and you know, right, and exactly. we know this, but, you know, we, uh, we, we like to live under the illusion. Um, I, will I, say, have a, yeah. I have another thing coming up, so we've got to yeah. close there. Yes, yeah, exactly. I was going to say. So um, <laughs> the last thing I will say, too, is in terms of, uh, of tools, um, Monash University in Malaysia thanks you for the pre-mortem tool, by the way. This is another thing oh, that people awesome. need to check out. Um, I, I discovered that, again, just reading through just before I had a, a meeting with them. Yeah, and, and I've got a really good chart for sort of putting all of that together. Uh, yeah. That was originally developed by Gary Klein. I'm building off of that, where mm. I'm asking people to think about, um, uh, you know, so a pre-mortem is, imagine you make a decision and it fails. It's the day after it's failed. Yeah. Why did yeah. that happen? And I really ask people to go a little step further, which is, what, 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 to your point, what was in your influence and what wasn't, right? So yeah. what were things, matters of skill, what were matters of what, but then also think about what the probability of those things happening is. Yeah. And then I give all sorts of ways that you can then respond to that pre-mortem in terms of yeah. your decision-making it, process. It's, so. it, look, it's an amazing, it's an amazing tool. And throughout the book, there's a whole bunch of incredible tools that take, take just the, the challenges of decision-making. But I think, you know, further to what we talked about, I guess, right at the beginning, just understanding how much of this is up to me, how much of it is luck, how much of it is skill. And where the two kind of come together, it's the essence of what is in how to decide. And I think it's why it's such a helpful book. So Annie Duke, thank, thank you. you so much for making the time to talk to me about it. All the best. I hope you sell a million copies. This was a great conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you.